The scripture passage this morning is in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 and going to verse 23. If you want to follow along, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 1776. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thanks, Becca. Thanks, Becca. So, I thought it was really important for Menohar to share that with you guys. Um, this is a person that he and I taught last year. He came to our seminars in India. Andhra Pradesh is the state Menohar is from. It's where his parents live. Um, and it, I think it's important to remember for a few reasons. One is to that person is your brother if you're a believer. As real as your family, he's your brother. And, um, and we should be, um, we should be sad, we should be, um, glad for his faithful finish, we should care about his family, um, we should also care about Christians in places who, I say Christians, I should say humans, including Christians, in places where they're not, um, people are not encouraged to live according to conscience. In the scriptures, the most invaluable, invaluable thing about human existence, which should not be violated by society or government, is the human conscience. The people should do, be able to do what they are deeply convinced is the right thing to do. Or they can hardly be human. And so, um, in some ways, I'd, mentally we should care as much about Baha'is in Iran being persecuted for what they believe as Christians in India or wherever. Does that make sense? And we should, um, we should care for people to live according to conscience, and then we should argue about what the conscience should be, t conscience should be telling us so that people can come to the truth, right? And thirdly, we should understand what vigilance is necessary for places that have and enjoy any kind of freedom. Um, sometimes we, who are born with the heritage of a certain amount of freedom in the United States, even, um, even the people who least experience freedom in America have experienced much more freedom than many people in many places of the world. And, um, 
it is only with vigilance that that endures. It is only with renewal does it continue. Does that make sense? Whether it's the people who we celebrate on Memorial Day, who literally died in military defense of our nation, or whether it's people who believe in the importance of freedom. And it is only renewed when you fight for the freedom of your enemy and those who believe very different from you. But then also stand up for yourself. It's very difficult right now in our country, and we have to learn how to do it. We have to learn how to vocally and powerfully speak up for the rights that we should bear as human beings and to do so for all people equally and then virtuously argue for the, what the truth is. And that is, that is not easily done. It is much easier to count people our enemies and yell against them and want more rights for us to tell them what to do and fewer rights for them to tell us what to do and argue with us. And it is an amount of virtue we may not be up to yet, and we need to get there. Does that make sense? It's also um, worth considering, in the face of martyrdom, what answers such horrible questions that it creates. Right? Like, what, what is good enough about Christianity that it's worth facing that? Like, that guy knew that could happen. Like, when I was in India, all kinds of people t- told stories about how, like, God had miraculously saved them from that happening to them. Like, they know what could happen to them. They preach the gospel anyway. Right? What, what is good enough for that? And so, at the end of last week, we actually talked about this, uh, this concept in the Bible called glory. Right? That there is this thing in the character and magnificence of God that is the beauty and enjoyment wrapped in the expression of his love that is designed to be the pleasure that we can experience, ever-increasing, never-diminishing, and never-parasitic. Right? All of our pleasures, all of our desires for food and sex and entertainment and flipping through apps that make us feel like something's funny for a minute, all the kind of fleeting, short, easy, glandular pleasures, they're quick, they diminish with aggression. Like, the more we try to eat them, the, more, the less they give us back. And they tend to be parasitic. The more we think we want them, the more we end up extracting from other people to get the happiness we want. You can see that in what we call our love affairs, right? The way we engage in romantic attachments in our present culture, which looks more like one person devouring another person's life than actually mutual encouraging love. And, um, but glory, that is, the beauty of the character of God expressed in all of creation, given in love, is the sort of pleasure and the sort of beauty that is never diminished by by our enjoyment and receiving of it. It is ever-increasing, ever-more-discovered, never-extractional, continually growing us as beings, and it is worth everything. Everything, even our own lives. It is the eternal pleasure. And so as we, as we come to these passages, one of the things to look at is the Apostle Paul talks for 14 verses about the glory of God as, as displayed in Christ. And then he gets to verse 15, and he tells these folks what he's praying for them about. Right? He's saying, before I even knew you guys and I heard you existed, I started praying for you, and I'm praying for you even to this day. So as he sits in his jail cell and he prays for them, the question is, what does he pray for? What does an apostle pray for? Right? And it, it would be good at this moment to think about what you pray for, what, what you think is the most important thing. And if you have children, you might reveal this to yourself partially, partially by asking yourself the question, not just what do I pray for, but what do I parent for? Right? And, 
And if you, if you think about how we pray for other people or how we parent or what we do, we, we tend to have a number of things that we're trying to chase, like, um, like we want them to be hard workers and like be the makers of success or be successful enough that they can take it easy or that they would like graduate from college because like then they'll be a real person, you know, or like um, that they'd be just really good at some thing like make, making music or playing soccer or doing the stuff. And you might be like, well, I don't think that's the most important thing. But the question is, okay, but do you behave like it's the most important thing? Because if you behave like it's the most important thing, then you, yes, you do think it's the most important thing, right? I mean, how, how many times do we go out of our way to make sure our kids have, have piano lessons, but we don't go anywhere out of our way to, make, to have family devotions, right? Or to explain to our kids why certain moral things are true and good and right, and why we should order our lives around them instead of like just other pursuits that are wholesome pursuits, wholesome pursuits. But what's the most important thing? What do you pray for? And when, when you get to the Apostle Paul, he doesn't pray for any of those things. None of them, right? He prays for us to receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we could know God better. And then he says, what, I, what my hope is, is that what I keep asking him is that on the basis of that, that you would, that you would know, right, that you would have, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and that you would know the hope that you've been called to, the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, and the incomparably great power in us who believe. That's what he prays for. So you can say something like this. Oh, sorry. Let me go back for a second. So, so you know, some people are like, I want, I want, I want to be successful. I want to pray for you to be successful. And then some people are the romantics, and they're like, I just, I don't want that for my kids. I just want them to find themselves and be happy, right? Or you're like, what I pray for people is that they'll find themselves and they'll be happy, okay? Um, just be really careful what you ask for. Be really careful about asking God that somebody would find themselves. Because in our culture, when most people say, I need to find myself, what they mean in modern, in the modern culture is, I'm gonna go destroy what's left of myself. That's what they usually mean by that. It doesn't mean they're really gonna find out who they are, because the minute you try to find out who you really are, and you want to be utterly happy, things change. So, I mean, you can imagine, if you ask God the question, God, do you want me to find myself and be happy, right? His answer probably isn't no, right? In some ways, this is the closest to God's answer. I mean, he'd much rather you find yourself and be happy than be like the best soccer player in your generation, right? But like, he'd probably answer something like this. If you were like, God, don't you want me to find myself and be happy? He'd probably say something like this. Yes, yes. It's, It's been my longing from eternity past for you to find yourself and be happy. But dear one, I mean a very different thing by the word yourself and a very different thing by the word happy. Right? Because God's interest in us finding ourselves is to find out what we really are. That is, what he has created us to be and what we are by virtue of his creation, which is a very definite thing. We are glorious and holy image-bearing creatures. We are the image-bearers of the holy and glorious God. That's what we are. You might be like, well, I didn't sign up for that. Well, you—I'm sorry. You don't get to pick what you are. I mean, that's part of the deal of being made. You don't—you weren't part of the making. The only reason you can, like, disagree with wanting to be that is because you're a divine image-bearer with the capacity of reason and understanding, with the imagination and creativity to even disagree. 
right? And what God wants for us, he can't not want for us. As a creator, he can't intend less. As a judge, he can't affirm less. And as a redeemer, he can't aim for less than us refining ourselves. But the problem is, is that if the concept of depravity is right, if we have lost ourselves and in losing ourselves forgotten ourselves in sin, then there, we can't go directly to finding ourselves. There is a prerequisite. Right? And the prerequisite to finding ourselves is glory. Because knowledge tends to have an order, especially if we've already gotten that knowledge wrong. And what we need to recognize first is what God is like and who he is, so that that knowledge can begin to reset who we think we are, so that we can find out what it means to be ourselves, and in finding ourselves that way, to know what it would be to pursue happiness in a way that wasn't extractional, that wasn't self-destructive, that wasn't too small for our being, but was in a way that created more for others, was rightly related to God, and was ever-expanding, which is, by definition, glory. Glory is the prerequisite for knowing who you are, says the, says the Bible and says Jesus, right? Um, so you could say something like this for— Can you move that thing for me? Um, for what this passage would say in summary. God wants you to experience the power of seeing the glory, his glory, in the pattern of Christ. He wants you to experience the power of seeing the glory, his glory, in the pattern of Christ, and that that is a prerequisite for finding yourself. Does that make sense? And if you, if you experience the power in seeing his glory in the pattern of Christ, you won't be able to help but find yourself. Because that Christ is true humanity. And that's what you must find first. Does that make sense? So let's look at some of the parts of this and how he goes through. Oh, this isn't working. Can we go to the next slide? Sorry, I don't know why this isn't working. So the first is, God wants the eyes of our heart to be able to see his glory. Right? That's what, that's what the apostle says that he's praying for. And this, this phrase, the eyes of our heart, um, that's e it's easy to just read over that metaphor and be like, oh, the eyes of our heart, that's really interesting, right? But it's actually fairly important to understand what that must mean, right? So we say the word heart very simply, um, and usually when we use a word as a cliché, it's because it actually means a lot, not because it doesn't mean anything. Like sometimes we'll say something like, oh, that's just a cliché. Well, it is just a cliché in that it's easy to make the thing drip off your tongue, but the reason we have a lot of these things that we call cliches or aphorisms is actually because they actually have within them an enormous amount of weight of truth. So we just use the word heart like everybody knows what it means. But what does it mean? Right? In, in, the, in the scriptures and in most of the ancient world and in the present world, it means something like where all of you kind of comes together. Right? It, it's, it's, like an, it's a nice circulatory metaphor, right? You've got your heart. And all of the veins, and all the arteries go out, and all the veins come back to that place. Does that make sense? And then it goes out to get life, and bring that life back, and ascend it through the system. It's a really cute spiritual metaphor, right? Like if your lungs are God or the Holy Spirit, right? Like the blood has to go out and get power, and it comes in, and it circulates through all of you. It's wonderful, right? But your, but your heart is this place where 
it go, everything goes out, everything comes back, right? And so there's this place where, like, your thinking, your sense of morality, your conscience, your feelings, your temperament, like, all these different sort of parts of you are kind of all—it's where they all kind of come together, right? And it's where you kind of—it's where you kind of have a sense of identity, who you really are. It's like all these things kind of jumble together in this way. It's where your most immediate feelings that you don't understand come out of, right? It's, it's, but it's also, it also determines mentally and emotionally how you see the world, right? So your heart in this metaphor has eyes. Do you see? And what Paul is praying is, is he's saying, listen, you have this thing, this thing we call the heart. Where everything kind of comes together. It's where you see the seed of yourself, it's, and it's how you see everything that's out there. And he said, my prayer is, is that God would give you in that place, a, a certain kind of spirit. It's really hard to quantify. It's really hard to know exactly what it is, but it's sort of like, it's, a, it's an immaterial reality of a thing that's there, and it does a certain kind of thing. And what this spirit will do is it's going to bring wisdom and revelation. That's what it's going to bring. That in this place, you're going to experience wisdom and revelation. You're going to experience two things that, that you, you can't just generate cognitively, that they— they enter in and they make this difference that there's a, a spirit of revelation that you will see things and savor them and understand what they mean in a way you did not before. And in that revelation, they will convert themselves to long-standing ways of understanding reality that you will be able to go back to and check against reality over and over again. In all kinds of situations, you'll be like, wait, does that check out with this thing that I know? That's called wisdom, right? And you say, what I'm praying is, is that God would spiritually— in, in a way and through a process you don't completely understand, give you a revelation and a wisdom that's result is you would know him better. So his number one priority, first of all, is that you would know God better. That's his number one priority. Now, I want you to understand something. The Ephesians were just like you in the sense that they wanted to be healthy and they wanted more money to spend. And of course, they'd spend it in good ways if they had it. You know, and they want their kids to turn out well, and they want to have a good—do good things with work. They want to get promoted. They would love to have more power. They're just human beings with all the desires you have. They're just—the stuff they wanted was slightly different in terms of manufacturing, okay? But their, their humanity was exactly like you. And so don't think that in though you like back in the ancient world, they didn't have anything, so they talked in spiritual language. No, they did not. They were in some ways more worldly in, at certain times and in certain ways. He says this because this is true for all humans in all places and all times. The number one thing you really need is to know him better, partly on the basis of experiencing and receiving a spirit of revelation and wisdom. Now, you might be like, okay, wh what am I supposed to do with that? Okay, there's a few things you can do with it. One is you can open yourself to it. There's, there's a phenomenon, there is an event, there is a thing that can happen in you where you would receive, not, don't think of a spirit personally in this context. It might be the Holy Spirit, and the work of the Holy Spirit, who is a person, maybe bringing this about. But in this case, it's specifically related to this revelation and this wisdom. Right? So the first step would just be, are, will you receive that? Will you be open to it? Will you open your heart and mind to it? Will you prepare yourself to believe? And will you recognize that in some ways, it will come to you mysteriously? Like, if, God, if he's praying that we'll receive a spirit of something, 
It's very difficult to be like, I'm gonna, I want to, I want to stir up in people a spirit of bravery. What does that colloquialism mean? Well, it's hard to say exactly. You're trying to produce a result, and it, it has to happen somehow. And somehow, the Apostle Paul knows it's somehow reliant on God and what God will do supernaturally to us. So on one level, the first step that you could take would be some things like this. You could agree with that prayer. You could say, like, in your heart, in the internal working, you could be like, yes, God, I want that. However that happens, however that works, whatever goes along with that, I want that. That's something that you could do. Two, you could echo the Apostle Paul, and you could pray for that, for you, for your children, and everybody around you. It's never going to be a bad prayer. It's never going to hurt anybody, right? It's always, it's, and it's always going to be the most important thing to pray for. People be, tell you prayer requests, would you please pray for my job? Yeah, I'm going to pray that God would give you a spirit of revelation and wisdom so that you could know him better and so that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know the hope to which you were called and the riches and the glorious inheritance of the church and that you will know the power that is incomparably great that is in you and I will pray after all of that if you're your boss if I get to it. Right? It's always the right prayer. What that also means is it's always the right attitude. If you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, it's still always the right attitude. But you should become a Christian, then you'll know that, right? It's always the right attitude. God's desire for you is that you would know him better. That you would become more open to a spirit of revelation and wisdom. So that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. So that you would see certain things. That's his desire for you. If you're struggling with God in a way that you're upset at him, and you're like, what's going on? First, check Step number one. Step number one is, are you in a position of openness and receiving to God giving you a spirit of revelation and wisdom so that you could know him better? Is that what you want? If that's not what you want, then you are at cross purposes with what God is doing, and that means that you're kind of quarreling. That's the best case scenario, you're kind of quarreling, right? You don't, you don't want to do that. Now, and I want you to also notice this. The result of the spirit of revelation and wisdom is that the eyes of your heart would see differently. Because remember, what he's referring to is the eyes of your heart. The, the eyes are a faculty of seeing. He doesn't mention that in the first line. His first line is, I want you to receive a certain kind of spirit. When you as a human, as a person, receive that spirit, this faculty of seeing the world, this internal you that you call your heart, it sees the world in a certain way. And if you receive that spirit of wisdom and revelation, it will see the world differently. You will begin in your heart to see the world differently. Do you understand? And he's like, the first things that that, that spirit of revelation and wisdom will start to help you see is the glory of God. The glory of God in Christ. And so what you'll begin to see are some of the most powerful and direct and truthful and life-changing realities of the glory of God in Christ. Namely, you will be filled with hope. You will begin to understand that if you've experienced a divine calling, if God has drawn you to himself and convicted you of sin in your heart and said to you like, hey, you need to come to me. And I have provided in Jesus a way for you to come. You just need to believe and confess and come to me and find your new identity in me. This can happen. It can happen right now. It can happen to you. And if you're like, yes, if you have received that call and you've responded to it, there's great hope in that. You are part of his redeemed people. And there's a riches that is a glorious inheritance that is in the saints. That is, it hasn't happened yet. It's not all done. It's in you and in us. Like, it belongs to us already and hasn't been given entirely yet. 
And you will begin to realize on the basis of that wisdom and revelation, the eyes of your heart will begin to see a world in which you can see more than the immediate material things in front of you. And you will know that the biggest realities in your life are that you have an eternal, unshakable hope and that you are the participant in being an heir of an incredible riches that are kept perfectly for you that you cannot lose. It's, that's there. You, you possess it. You're part of it. You're part of that family. And third, that you, have, that you have in him, in Christ, an incomparably great power. Right? I know the sophisticated way to say that word is incomparably. The best etymological way to say it that gets at its definition is incomparably, right? You, there is no power it can be compared to. And that that's what he's praying for. He wants you in the eyes of your heart to see the glory of God. What that means is this. It should be your central passion if you're a Christian. If you ask, if you, if you say, okay, Nick, I, I believe in Jesus. What am I supposed to do now? Okay, great. The number one thing God wants for you is for you to receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you can know him better and so that the eyes of your heart will begin to see these examples of the glory of God. That's number one. That's always number one. That's always going to be number one. That's next. So your question may be, well, how do I do that? Okay, we're going to get that to lots of other sermons, okay? But, but none of that matters until you decide that's the number one thing. If your number one thing is something else, right? God helping you find somebody. God helping you, like, do better at this thing or get over this addiction or do that thing or reconnect with your parents that you hate or, like, whatever, or your kid who's been a big—whatever it is. I don't care. I care about the thing. What I don't care about is— that you think it's stacked as number one. It's not number one. It's way down here somewhere. Because you're not—you can't become the kind of person that can deal with that thing until you begin to experience the glory of God. The glory of God is the only thing that can make you ready to face martyrdom. And that's what you'll need to be to face all the difficulties of your life, present and future. Okay? So the most important thing is for you to become that kind of person. You cannot become that kind of person until you find yourself— you can only find yourself, really, by seeing that you were made to be glorious and holy because the God who created you in his image is glorious and holy, and he has displayed that in the pattern of Christ, which means it's to be found somehow in understanding the pattern of Christ, who he is, what he did, how he did it, why he did it, all that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to the second thing. I can't make it happen. Great. The second thing is, that we can see his glorious exertion in the power of Christ. We can see his glory and how he's exerted himself in Christ in relationship to his power. Now, the apostle could have gone through something like this in relationship to hope and riches too. But here he specifically starts—he goes on— he, power is his last of the three examples, and he goes on to talk about power more. And, he's, and I want—okay, some of you do not like repeating after pastors, and you do not like it when pastors say, repeat after me. So when I say you can repeat this if you—so I say you can repeat this if you want to. Because it's actually a really good way to learn and open your heart and not be combative and, and defensive, but it also really angers people. So if it really—just, you don't have to do it, right? But I want you to see something. It says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That is, the power that he's saying is in everyone who believes. But that power is the same power as what he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Say that with me if you want to. It is 
It is the same. It is the same. It is the same power. It is the same power. It is the same power. And listen, it is not even just the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's more than that. It is the same power that raised him not only from the dead, but ascended him to the right hand of God, where he is seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, those are not all technical words. Those are just a lot of words that, that point to power and seats of power. And the point of using all four of those words is to cover everything. No matter what you think is powerful, your desires, the government, nuclear bombs, Kawhi Leonard, whatever, okay? Whatever you think is powerful in this age or in the one to come, in the physical existence that you exist in, in the immaterial world of mathematics, in the world of spirits and devils, listen, listen, I don't care where you think the power is, right? What this says is the power that is in you who believe is the same power through which he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in his right hand above all rule and power and dominion, not only in this age, but in the age to come. It's that power. And it's new. And you have it. It's real. And it is directly connected to the glory of God. And it is directly connected to the pattern of Christ. But this is spoken of in the present. Okay? The glorious riches hidden in the saints is something that's going to be revealed in the future fully. It says in chapter 1, it's kept for you in the heavenly places. It's not what it says about the power. This is about this power that he exerted in Christ, and it's in you who believe, and it's active in you right now. Right? And you're like, some of you are like, that's so great. Or like one person always says amen. In the last service, one person said amen too. Right? But then for everybody else, it's kind of like, I, Nick, I, I don't know about that. Like, yes, I like, I believe that. But the, in the heart place you're talking about, I don't know if the eyes of my heart see that, you know? I get it. Okay, go to the next slide if you can. Part of the issue here is, this is why when I said the thing at the beginning, I said, God wants you to see the power of his, the, his power in his glory in the pattern of Christ. That last sentence, in the pattern of Christ, is really critical because in Jesus, you can see the mixed nature of how the glorious power of God is revealed, and then you'll understand your life a lot better. So in Jesus, you can see in his death and resurrection— an enormous display of the direct, incredible power of God. He was raised from the dead. He's seated in heaven. He's over everything, and he's over everything forever. That's a lot of power, right? And that same Jesus was brutally murdered, hated, and misunderstood. The blessings are in heaven. They have not been exerted in this, in our earthly experience entirely yet. And that his rule, he's over everything, but his rule isn't fully recognized yet, and forever isn't here yet. So, do you understand? So to speak. And so, this is why the apostle over and over again in this passage always says, in Christ, in Christ, in him, in Christ. Like, if you read Ephesians 1, one of the things that stands out more than anything else is how many in Christs and in hymns there are. They're everywhere. Why? 
Because you see, if you just think, glory of God, what my life should be like right now, you'll think that you should be able to, like, make a Cadillac or something like this, or like, all, like eat at Chipotle every day and not get chubby. Like, you, you would think that, like, everything is awesome, should be awesome all the time because the glory of God's power is in you, and, like, you, if you just learn to walk, like, you, so you'll either think that's stupid, crazy, like, dumb, superstitious, like, that's the worst part of religion there could possibly be, or you'll be like, well, I should really believe that, and that should really be true, but my life doesn't seem to be like that, and so you'll think that either you don't believe or there's something wrong with your faith or something like that. But that's not what Paul says. If you pay attention to all the ins, right? The prepositions put everything in context. In Christ, in Christ, in him, in him, in Christ. The way you have that power, the way you bear that hope, the way you possess those riches is the same as it was done in Christ. Does that make sense? And part of the dynamic of that is you have to understand that Jesus was working out a story, like, we're in the thing. Right? So, I mean, imagine if you had a friend, you were like, and your friend said something like, I just saw this movie. It was so great. It was so, so it was amazing. It was the best ending, like, I've ever seen. It was so great. It was the greatest thing. It was so the greatest thing. You've got to watch it with me, right? And because you're a friend, you're like, okay, I'll, I'll watch this movie, especially if you say it's that great. It's like, it's so great. You're going to love it. It's so great. So you sit down and watch it, and it's one of those, like, movies. It's, like, three hours long because it's artistic or something. And so you, you watch a bunch of it, and there's, like, there's characters and setting, and, you know, there's a conflict and, you know, misunderstandings and things escalate. And, and then something happens with the hero that, like, they get new tools or a new understanding where maybe they can now succeed. And, like, and then you stand up, and you're like, I'm sick of this. I'm done. This movie stinks, right? I'm out of here. I've, I've wasted two and a half hours of my life. I'm going to like, I don't know, Chick-fil-A, okay? What's your friend going to say? Yeah, give me a, give me a sandwich. <laughs> Extra pickles. Right? They're going to say that, and they would be right to say that, right? But they're, but they're also going to say something like, it's not over! Like, you got to wait for it to, like, everything's been building up to this. Like, it's not done. Like, the way it'll all resolve, what's going to happen, it's still happening. You can't judge a movie when you're still watching it. Right? Now, listen. There are some movies that are so bad. (laughs) Right? Like, you should judge Passion in the Desert, like, in the first 25 minutes, okay? Like, you've never heard of it. There's a reason why, right? The Russian Ark. Just don't do it, okay? But like, there are some movies that they didn't seem good until the end. There's other movies that you disliked even when they finished, but a week later you liked them, right? It, you just, it, it, it hasn't resolved yet. One of the fundamental things about Christian faith is in the story of salvation, through salvation history, in the world as it is, it is still going. And it is, and we are not existing in the pattern of Christ as he is in heaven presently. We are existing in the pattern of Christ as he was as the Christ on earth. Right? How do we, how do we know that? Let's go to the next thing. Because the apostle tells us that. We are with him or with Christ, and he is with us in that power here 
in the world. And he says this, right? He says, And God placed all things under his, that's Jesus, feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now there's a sister epistle to Ephesians, which is the book of Colossians, which is right after, just two after it, actually, in the New Testament. And there's a, there's a verse in that that's very weird. The Apostle Paul says this, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, that is the church in Colossae, and I fill up in my flesh or body what is lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ. Does that make sense? What does that mean? Like, what is lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ? Right? What, he, what he means by that is this. There's nothing lacking in the atoning death of Jesus. You read the rest of the Colossians, you would never get the idea that there was something lacking in the atoning work of Christ, that he died for us. But what's lacking is, is that people interacted with Christ. Like, part of what launched the church and brought together the disciples and put out the message of the gospel and invited people back to God and helped people to spiritually find themselves is the fact that there was a human delivery system for that. Jesus came in the flesh. And he didn't come immediately to a cross. He came and he ministered and he did miracles and he also suffered and he demonstrated in character what it meant to be under the invitation of God, what it meant to be under the wrath of God, what it meant to be dislocated from the truth, what it would mean to come back to it. All that was shown and taught and put forward by him, right? And then he died, and he said, I'm going to send my spirit, and then I'm going to send you out to do it, right? Because just do the math. Jesus couldn't go to everybody, right? And so what this says is, is that Jesus, who's ascended in heaven, he has so much authority and power that God has put everything under his feet, Right? And then God has made him the head. And we are, or the church is, the body. Do you see the metaphor here? You've got feet down here. You've got the head up here. And what do you have in here? You've got the body, right? The body. It's a nice body, right? And that body is the church. That's all who believe. That's you who believe, right? And he's saying that that body or the church, that is us who believe, are his fullness. We are his fullness. Okay? That's a little like that verse in 1 Peter where it says that through him we can participate in the divine nature and overcome the corruption of this world. Like, it would, it, you, you would think that that would have to be some kind of heresy if it wasn't in the scriptures themselves. Right? That, that we could—we we not can think of ourselves as the fullness of Christ. We must, in order to understand who we are, Understand that together, in this organism of people, this new humanity called the church, we are the fullness of him. The very one who fills everything in every way, which is a claim to divinity, right? That that is God. God fills everything in every way. And the, the one who fills everything in every way allows his fullness to be demonstrated in the physical world through his body, which is the church, right? And what is under his body's feet? Everything. Everything. He's arguing that in the pattern of Christ, this power resides in us, and that is our identity. That is finding yourself. 
That is who you are in him. And that doesn't mean violent domination. Look at the pattern of Christ. What is the pattern of Christ? He was his father's son. He was always the God-man. He always deserved to rule the world. And how did he behave? He didn't behave like a tyrant. He never tries to raise an army. He never tried to rebel against Rome. Could have. He didn't. Was it because he didn't have that much authority? No, it's because he used it differently. Similarly, and it wasn't that he didn't have power. He used it differently. Our issue as believers is not we don't have any power. It's not that we don't have any authority. It's that we're meant and called and demanded to use it in the pattern of Christ. Right? The same person who told the sea to shut up and be still and told blindness to go away turned to the Roman guards and let them arrest him and kill him. It was not a lack of power. In fact, he literally said to Peter, remember this in the Bible? Peter, like, attacks one of the people. He's like, put your sword away, you dope. He's, and and he's, like, he's like, listen, if I wanted the ten legions of angels here right now, don't you think they'd be here? This is intentional. I'm telling the story. I'm showing how you use this kind of divine power. And see, in this culture where people are afraid of power and they're afraid of strength— and they're afraid of claims to power or people believing that they have any kind of power. People are politically terrified of that. And yet, in people's personal lives and in people's social lives and family lives, they feel completely powerless. I can't tell you just how many people I talk to. They're just racked with insecurity and inferiorities. They don't know what to do. And of course, all adolescents are by definition racked with insecurities, right? There's like whole swaths of ages that it's automatically true because it's part of their development. And then there's all kinds of people that have tried to emerge into adulthood and know who they are and what they are, and they've been trying to find themselves, and it has not been on the basis of the glory of God and the image of God in them. And they have no idea who they are, and they feel so powerless. And part of their feeling of powerlessness is they want to make sure nobody else claims any power because they know they're so powerless that they're terrified of anybody else having power. And they also know that almost everybody that they've interacted with that's had any power has misused it. The solution is not to humiliate power. That's certainly not Jesus' solution. The solution is to find ourselves. The solution is to receive graciously as a gift of God the spirit of revelation and wisdom so that you can know him better. The one who could blot out all of sinful humanity in a thought, and instead gives his own son in grace to redeem it. The one who uses his power like that. So that you could be empowered beyond your wildest imagination, and it bless people rather than hurt them. The world actually lacks that. It's not in abundance, and we're never going to survive without it. There's this verse, if you go to the next slide, in the book of Hebrews, where it's a different context, and it's talking about something slightly different. But it says that—it shows you the, like, the, the, the timing, right? He, he says that Jesus is this, as a high priest. He says, but when this priest had offered once for all time, one for all time a sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now think about that for a second. See the idea? Everything is under his feet. 
but his feet actually aren't on and squishing it yet. You see that? Everything's under him. But he's in the heavenly places. He is above it because all the stuff that's under his feet, it's still getting resolved. Things are still happening, right? They haven't been made his footstool. He doesn't rest with all his authority, just rest upon it with complete control. The, the universe that rejects him has not yet become his ottoman. Does that make sense? He has authority to do it, but he hasn't done it yet. And it's because something is happening. He has done these things, and now he waits. Why does he wait? Well, in time, his enemies will be made his footstool. And also in this present time, those who he's died for and he's made perfect and in the sacrifice of his death are being made holy. Right? He's taking us and he is changing us. Into what? Into ourselves. He's making us holy. Well, what are we? We're image bearers of the holy God. He's making us into ourselves. The more we become ourselves, the more we reflect who? God. So the more we will have his fullness. Who, who does Ephesians say we're called to be? Under the head. The church who is his fullness. You see, he's doing all these things. You see, don't think you can work out the ending of the story. You can't. All you can do is this. You can decide if you will open your heart and soul to receive his spirit of wisdom and revelation to reveal the pattern of Christ in all its glory. And in that spirit of transformation to so change your heart that who you are from the inside will be so changed that the eyes of your heart, what you see in your soul, will fundamentally change because it will be illuminated a light will shine, and you will see things you never saw. You will see them in a way you've never seen them before. You will see them in a depth you've never seen them before, and you will see in them a purpose you've never seen before. It will be filled with hope, a knowledge of the riches of Christ, and a realization of the power you have in him. As he grows you into the fullness, which is his body, and in that fullness, he gives witness and love of God through us to the world the same way he did so when he was here bodily as the Christ. That is who we are. That's who you are. And that is why salvation and transformation is always by faith. Will you and do you believe this? Are you experiencing in your heart a spiritual call? Do you feel a sense of conviction? Do you feel a sense of a desire for God? Do you see things like a glimmer of something you haven't entirely seen before. Are you willing to walk down this path? Are you willing to respond in faith? That is the question. And that is always the question. And the thing that Jesus would, Jesus' prayer request for you is this, that you would know him better, that you would know the hope and the riches and the power, and that you would, that in it, you would see God's glory. And that glory isn't just powerful, it's pleasurable. It is the participation in the sight of the beauty of God. And it will fill your life with a kind of pleasure and deepen it. And you will experience in your life will be rooted in a pleasure that will not steal from anyone else, will not destroy you, and will be rightly related to the one who created and redeemed you. And it will bring 
blessing and spiritual fertilization to everything around you. Let's pray. God, we, um, it's very difficult for us to overcome the distractions that immediately come around us and to us and to think on things of the heart and to desire deeply a spiritually given transformation that will reveal to us things we did not know and teach us deep structures of wisdom we have never incorporated into our lives and to experience the result of seeing in the place of our heart things very differently. And yet, God, we know that you have offered us hope and riches and power. You've meant for us to find ourselves. You have meant for us to be happy in the pattern of Christ. In the pattern of Christ. Help us to be a people who seek and follow and find you, who experience this knowledge and who know you better and to experience the hope that you've called us to. I pray that in it you would empower us greatly, that we would be the fullness of you in, in bodily form for the world that we interact with, for the people in our lives, for our neighbors, friends, and our family, and the people who rely on us. Help us have the heart of love and service that are produced by such a hope. We pray in Jesus' name.